Well, it's good to see everybody today. Um, this, I can't believe it, we're at the end of our study of the book of Numbers, and we are at the end of this fall series of PBS. So I, I, I'm always, it's always a mixed thing for me. I'm always a little bit, I'm always definitely a little sad about this, but I'm always a little bit relieved too, because because coming, because I know that next week, you know, we're really gearing up for Advent and everything like that. So, uh, so, so I'm glad that <laughs> I'm glad to have a little bit of time open up in my in my preparation. Um, but in any event, this has been. I hope I hope you all have enjoyed this study. Um, it's uh, I, my my goal in introducing you to the Book of Numbers was to show you that there is a lot more here than we have than we have originally. Uh, perhaps thought. I, I began this class by describing numbers as the as the graveyard of New Year's resolutions, uh, meaning that whenever people in the new year dedicate themselves to read the Bible, the whole Bible through in a year, you know, they start off with Genesis. This is awesome. You know, all these great stories. Man, there's a lot to think about. Stuff I've I never even thought about before. Then you get into Exodus, and oh, I mean. Uh, only Cecil B. DeMille could make a movie to catch, capture this. Charlton Heston, Moses, the whole thing. It is incredible. We get, through, we get through Exodus, and then here's Leviticus. Okay, okay, Jesus said I'd have to take up my cross. At some point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, kind of force back the gag reflex. I'm going to get through all these laws. It's a little bit like reading a, you know, a VCR or microwave operations manual. Um, you know, but you start reading through it, and it's like, okay, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, and you get to Numbers, you're like, nope, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. Can't do it, because those first few chapters of Numbers where it's just name after name, and count after count, and tribe after tribe, and this is where, as I said, New Year's resolutions go to die. Um, so, so my desire was to help us understand that the book of Numbers, first of all, is misnamed. Remember, what is the name of, the, what's the Hebrew name of the book of Numbers? It's Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. That already is better marketing. That's better branding. We should have stuck with that. Um, but, it's, but that's what it is. Numbers, Arithmoi, that's the Greek name for the book, for the book of Numbers. But, but in the wilderness, we talked about that. We talked about this wilderness journey of the people. And we talked about you know, what the wilderness means to the people of Israel. And, and that, it, you know, that it is a that it is a context of, of testing and trial. And you know, this is the place where not only the people of the wilderness, uh, the people of Israel were challenged, but this is also the place where, where Jesus was tested and where he was challenged. We'll say a little bit more about that even later today. But but this was all, you know, this this I hope this whole journey has has been invigorating, challenging, encouraging, um, and, and all of those things to you. Um, we're gonna finish up. Uh, something that we didn't finish up last week, and then we're just going to kind of do an overview of a, a review and some, some final thoughts on numbers today. But before we get into that, I wanted to do two things. First, I want to tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing next semester, and then I want to, and then I want to uh, pray for us as we get into our study today. Um, first of all, what are we doing next semester? I don't have the whole sort of media package put together just yet, but uh, and that's mainly because our, our Precious new, uh, our, our precious new uh, media uh, person, Abigail Roten, uh, got married uh, last week, and so you know I wanted to celebrate with that with her. My gift to her was not giving her one more project to put on her plate, um, but but uh, we'll have all that together. But I wanted to announce to you all the topic for next semester. Um, as I was studying, or as I was teaching you all the book of Numbers, I was in my own personal study continuing to read uh, through, the New, uh, through the Old Testament. And over the last month or so, I've been, I've been in the book of Joshua. And after having read through the book of, uh, of Deuteronomy, um, one of the things that, that, that hit me in the, book of, in the book of Joshua is that all of these things that are talked about and set up in the book of Numbers are sort of brought to completion or or fulfillment in the book of Joshua. Now, Deuteronomy, what's up with Deuteronomy? We're going to talk about that. That's, we're not going to just skip it, but we're not going to go into depth. But what Deuteronomy is kind of a, that, that's sort of Moses' valedictory address. It, it means, the word Deuteronomy actually means second law. And so he's sort of 
kind of it, it's sort of a recap before they before they go into the promised land. He's he's sort of making sure now we're all on the we're all on board. We're all on the same page. We've all got the same messaging, and that's what Deuteronomy is all about. It's about re, restating the law. But then Joshua comes along, and the people are actually entering the promised land. And all these things, I, I just never thought about this before. When, you, when you're doing numbers and you read Joshua side by side, you really begin to see, oh, wait a minute, I remember this, and this connects to this. And, and just there's so many themes that just get picked up again. And I think it'll be a great way for us to go even more deeply into the study of God's people. So the title of the course is going to be Joshua, Bold and Courageous, because that's a phrase that God, uh, that God uses and, and a command that God gives to Joshua several times as Joshua assumes the mantle of leadership. He says, be bold and courageous. Be bold and courageous. Be bold and courageous. And I think that as we go through, that's, that is an inspiring thing for us to just be bold and courageous in the study of God's Word. So we'll be picking up Joshua uh, in, uh, in January as, as we get out information to you. There'll be more to that. But uh, one other bit of information I also wanted to, to say, and, and uh, please help spread this word, we'll also be doing uh, that we'll be bringing back the Wednesday night version. Uh, we had some great classes on Wednesday nights this fall, so I did not teach it, uh, a Wednesday night version, but, um, but we will be doing that again. So that's also for the people online if you all are... Um, interested in that. Um, I call it the working, uh, the working man's edition because th since this meets at 10 o'clock on Thursday, there are some people who just can't come because of their work schedules. But on, uh, on Wednesday night, we don't have that problem. So we will be doing it on Wednesday night as well. Uh, so same thing. You don't have, you, there's no need to come to both unless you want to just participate in the, in the small group portion. But that's, that's what's coming up uh, after Christmas, after uh, in January. So I wanted to let you all know about that. So let's jump back into numbers and we'll, we'll get started. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today because we, we know that you are our God. You have led us, you have guided us, and you, you continue to, to keep your hand upon us as your church. But Lord, we know that we all have wilderness seasons of our lives, times that challenge us, times when we rebel, Times, O oh Lord, when we need to be reminded of your great faithfulness. So, Lord, help us now to, to again use this time to grow closer to you and deeper into your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week I said that I was not going to go into this, uh, this issue of the cities of refuge. That was a kind of a, a, a dangling piece, a loose end I left on your outline last week. And I did want to come back to that because it is important, and it was, in my opinion, too important to cover hastily last week. And it's actually kind of interesting because I don't know how many of you all have been paying attention to what's going on up in Kenosha, Wisconsin right now. Um, there's, you know, of course, there is a young man on trial who was, the, the chief question is, he, he, uh, he's being accused of, of murder and he's pleading self-defense related to a shooting and, and the riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, uh, back in 2020, last summer. And, you know, I mean, the fascinating legal questions and things like that. Um, but, but, you know, as I was, as I was coming into this, this session today, it was interesting to me that, again, you know, God is, is not only all-knowing, but he, he is all-caring. And one of the things that, that he provided with his people was, was a way to de-escalate a situation to hopefully make it a little bit more calm. You know, one of the things that I think is is important is that people have justice, you know, quickly and, and surely. But on the other hand, justice sometimes takes time. And sometimes, you know, ordinarily, I hope that in the in the inter, in the meantime, what happens is that things can cool off, they can de-escalate, and and everybody can have a chance to soberly look at the facts of the case. Unfortunately, I think in the Kenosha situation, because of artificial reasons, it continues to be amped up and the heat keeps going up. But ordinarily, in a, in a judicial case, it does take a long time to bring something to trial because we, you know, whether you're the defense or whether you're the state, you want to do a thorough investigation of the facts. You want to know what's really happening. You want to, you want to make sure that if, you know, if, you know, if somebody's going to be punished or exonerated, that, that the right thing happens. 
On the one hand, you don't want to say that, oh, well, it's just better to go ahead and let this person die for a crime we aren't sure he committed because because the lust of the bloodlust of the crowd says he should. On the other hand, you don't want to let the victim's family suffer needlessly and say, well, you, you and your loved one didn't matter, um, so we don't care if somebody died. And so, you know, how do you de-escalate that situation? Well, God built into the structure, into the very fab fabric of Israel, a, a system for dealing with a question of, uh, of manslaughter or death. And what these, the system that he built in was a system called the cities of refuge. And we find this in chapter 35, beginning in verse 9. But very simply, it, it's fascinating that, you know, remember last week at the end of the lesson, we talked about the cities of the Levites. And the idea of the city of the Levites was that the, the Levites would not just have one area. They wouldn't just have one county or country or state or province they wouldn't just have one city. Rather, they would, be, they would be scattered through these villages, through these little towns throughout Israel. And that accomplished two things. It accomplished the idea, first of all, it gave them a place to live, which is practical. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that you all help, you know, help us out with a place to live because uh, we've got to live somewhere. Um, but it, and, and I'm not from here. I, didn't, I have no land in Texas. I inherited no land. I have no family in Texas other than my wife's family, but they live in Odessa, and that's a heck of a commute to San Antonio. So we could stay with them, but that would be a long way. But, you know, you know the, we and the clergy need a place to live. But it also, in, in addition to just giving them a practical place to live, the cities of refuge also, or excuse me, the cities of the Levites also scattered the Levites throughout the country. And so there was always a reminder of the presence of God everywhere. Now, I'm not, you know, if we look into the book of Judges, we see that not all Levites are honorable and things like that. And so, and we all know that not every pastor or priest is necessarily a positive uh, example of the presence of the Lord. But theoretically, the idea is you scatter this tribe among the other tribes to be a constant, visible, enfleshed, version of the presence of the Lord. You're going to one day have, you've already got the tabernacle, one day you're going to have the temple, the structural, physical rendition of the presence of the Lord in the world. But the presence of His people, the church, that's another way of doing it. And so that's why the cities of the Levites were scattered everywhere. The cities of refuge were an instrument or a reminder of God's mercy as well as His justice. What were the city of refuge? The cities of refuge scattered throughout Israel, were these cities that were basically a, a base. Yeah, everybody remembers playing tag when you were, when you were a little kid. And, you know, and your, you know, your, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your friend is bearing down on you, and they're about to tag you, and you're about to be it. But wait, there's that tree, and if you can get to that tree, then it's what? It's base. It's safe. And, if you can just, and then you can touch the tree, and then you can taunt them. That was always the fun part. Um, but you, you, get to the, you get to the base and you're safe. Well, the idea of the cities of refuge is that they were base. So if there was a death in the village, you know, the, the obligation of the family is to get vengeance on the... I mean, it's not just a kind of an anger thing. There was sort of an idea that you, you would exact justice. And, and the whole idea of the city of refuge was to slow things, down a slow things down a little bit. Under Israelite law, in the case of homicide, the male relative closest to the murder victim was expected to exact retribution. This person in Hebrew law was called the avenger or the avenger of blood. And the avenger was allowed under Israelite law to hunt down and execute the killer. That's in the case of a homicide. What about the case of manslaughter? One guy's up on a ladder, fixing his roof, drops a heavy stone on his friend, and he dies of a head wound. Is that murder or manslaughter? Um, so, the re so what we have here is a question of, you know, is that person a murderer or a manslayer? Well, manslayer, still a, there is still a death involved. But how do you handle that? I mean, he didn't mean to, it was an accident. You know, ran over him with his cart. It was a, you know, I mean, whatever the, whatever the reason was, the question is, is it, you know, 
was it intentional? Was it premeditated? All the stuff that the legal system goes through now. That's kind of the, what's going on in, in the Kenosha trial. Is it, was it murder or was it self-defense? You know, that's what the jury is trying to decide right now. That's what the lawyers have presented the case to represent. But in, in Hebrew law, the idea was that if someone kills somebody else, they had the right to get to one of these towns, Hebron, Bazar, Shechem, Ramoth, Gilead, Golan, or Kadesh. You see, they're kind of spread out. So you didn't have to go, if, if, you, if somebody dies up in the uh, county of Dan, you don't have to get all the way down to Simeon to be safe. And the idea was that if you can make it to one of these cities, you can basically plead base. Now that doesn't mean that nothing happens. What it means is, okay, we're going to settle down. Everybody's going to settle down. We're going to take a minute, and the elders of the city are going to try the case. And the, and the idea, ideally, is that we get to the truth of the matter. Was this an accident, or was this intentional? And so, and it's interesting that they're called cities of refuge. They are for, for the manslayer, which, which you know, what is the, what's the legal principle that is represented by that? The legal principle is what? Innocent before proven guilty. That's right. It's the presumption of innocence. So they say, it's not, these are not cities where murderers are told to go hide. There's, you know, this is where a manslayer goes, and if we discover you're a murderer, then... You are, you know, then you are subject to the penalties of, uh, of the law. But I think it's fascinating that even, even back then you have you know, just this very, very, um, uh, very, very prototype understanding of mercy and God's mercy represented throughout, uh, throughout, the, um, uh, throughout the whole country. And I just think it's worth our, um, worth your, worth our study. So look, it's in chapter 35, verses 9 through 34. Because there's so many things, the reason I wanted to bring this up and just not skip it and just tell you how to read it is because there's so many things in the book of Numbers that are prototypes of larger biblical themes. And we're going to be talking about some of those at the end of class today. But, you know, just think about some of the, some of the ways that the gospel is represented here in the Old Testament. This, in many ways, the book of Numbers is full of the gospel before the gospel. And that's, that's, this is one of those times. This is a reminder of God's mercy everywhere in the same way that God's presence is demonstrated everywhere through the presence of the cities of the Levites. So I, you know, I commend that to you. It, it, it is actually interesting, especially if you have a mind at all for procedures and things like that. Look at verses 9 through 34 of chapter 35. Um, it's, it's fascinating to see how that all plays out. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and uh, if you actually, let me say this. Jim Carsey brought this up. I kind of condensed the outline a little bit today on the outline. But if you go back to last week's outline, there's actually sort of a breakdown of some of some of the qualities of this. So as as Jim said, which five points did you cut out? Because there were nine points before you cut out, and you only left four. I kind of left the summary points, but uh, but there's a little bit more in last week's outline. What I really want to get to today is what I is what I've titled this episode: the Epic of the Wilderness. Um, chapter 33, although it's not the last chapter of, uh, of Numbers, is one of those places where Moses stops the, stops the people and says, all right, everybody, gather around. It's time to remember what's happening here. And remember, that is so important at this point because by this time, by chapter 33, that entire generation that has come out of Egypt is now gone with the exception of Moses and Caleb and Joshua. They're the only three guys left who came out of Egypt. Remember that? Hundreds of thousands of people came out. These are the only three guys left. And so it's important at this point for the institutional memory of the people, for, for Moses to once again begin to set out what has happened. What has God done for us? Remember this series that we're preaching right now on Lamentations. You know, we talk about our faithfulness in God comes from our memory of what He's done for us in the past. Our love, uh, the love we experience from Him in the present, but also our expectation for the future. That's what we're going to be talking about this week. 
But the memory of the past is so important. You know, um, I, I heard Sunday, or I heard earlier, earlier this week that gratitude is the death of entitlement. And that, and that really, what is the basis of gratitude? It's memory. Memory of what somebody else has done for us. And so what Moses wants to do is establish, once again, before they go into the promised land, the idea of what God has done and the reminder of what God has done. As a matter of fact, that's the whole book of Deuteronomy. It's, it's everybody, again, gather around. Before we go into the promised land, we're going to remember how we got here. We remember how we got here. And so Moses in chapter 33 gives, I think, sort of a preliminary account of how we got here, how we got through the wilderness. And of course, um, in verses 1 through 3, it says this, These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by, the, by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord, and these are their stages according to their starting places. Now what we see here is a whole list of place names uh, in, the, uh, in, in the book of, uh, excuse me, in the book of, oh, I keep going the wrong way, in the book of Numbers about all the places where they stayed and camped along the way. I mean, how many of you all have taken family trips and you don't necessarily remember what day you did something, but you remember that was when we were staying in West Jefferson. That was when we stayed in Pampa. That was when we stayed in New York. You know, you don't necessarily remember the date, but you remember where you were when it happened. And so that's, so, so this is kind of, again, an exercise in corporate memory. And Moses is going through recounting the history of Israel by saying, first we went here, and then we camped here, and then we camped here. It's fascinating. This is one of the only places where all of those campsites, or this is the only place where all these campsites are listed. And this is the only time that some of these places are ever mentioned in the Bible. Um, but we don't know anything more about them other than that they camped there. But there are lots of stops, and over 40 years, you can imagine, there was a lot of movement. Um, but it really it begins with the exodus from Egypt. Man, I just I have my trigger finger today. Uh, it begins with the exodus in Egypt. And, you know, everything about these rehearsals of the law began with the, those words. You know, remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Of course, what was happening in Egypt? Egypt was a place of slavery. It was the place uh, where they had been for 400 years. And this is the starting point of the journey. They set out from Ramesses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month. Remember that city, Ramesses? We talked about this the first, if you're a big Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark fan, uh, tan, the, the, the city of Ramesses is the lost city of Tanis. Just FYI, just throw that out the next time you're watching cable. Um, so they set out from there on the day after Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. You know, it mentions here, the, the mention of Passover is a reminder of the plagues, without mentioning the plagues. It's about this cosmic battle. But then we see in, uh, we see in verses 3 and 4 that you know, while the Egyptians were burying their, all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So right here in this sort of the preamble, in the very beginning stage of their journey, we remember that God's liberation of the people of Israel from Egypt was not simply a political revolution or an escape. This was a divine battle that Yahweh won. He, you know, remember, the, the Pharaoh of Egypt was the embodiment of this guy, the god Horus, who was supposed to be, you know, he was a god as far as they were concerned. And so it was important not only that God set them free, but that he bury the face of this false god in the victory to show his supremacy in the world. And so there was, a, there was a definite message sent. This was a shock and awe campaign. And we see reverberations of that through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even into, uh, even into Joshua. There are mentions of Egypt in Joshua. Yeah, we remember what y'all did to the Egyptians. And that's, that kind of set, set up a lot of victories. So we see, you know, we see that it begins with this battle with Pharaoh the, the final battle of which was actually not the Passover, it was what? It was what took place at the Red Sea when the armies of Pharaoh are decisively wiped out. 
You know, first of all, first God took Pharaoh's legacy, his firstborn son, and then, and then, and then God destroyed when Pharaoh persisted. God then destroyed his armies at the Red Sea, and so we have that. You know, it says it says here in this chapter it mentions that they camped beside the Red Sea. Again, remember what happened there. Then it mentions that they go through after several places all the way to Sinai. Well, what happened at Sinai? Anyone? Anyone? Was Sinai important? Yeah, that's right. The Ten Commandments. Thank you, Lindsay. That's exactly right. That's what we. That's what happened at Sinai. They were there for a long time. They were at Sinai for a long time, and that is where God delivered the law to Moses. Where then Moses delivered the law to the people. Now we also know that at Sinai, we um, we uh, he gave God gave us uh, God gave them the instructions for building the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle was that, that mobile, that tent, uh, that, it was a tent, it was a mobile temple that became the, uh, the physical center of the worship of God as well as the people of Israel. Now, we've talked about this before, that the tabernacle, like the temple after it, was considered to be the house of God. That being said, the Hebrews did not believe that God lived in there, that he was trapped in there, that anything like that. They knew that God, they knew that God was much bigger than that. They knew that God was omnipresent. God was everywhere. That's, that was not an issue. But, what the, but the, the point of the tabernacle, the point of the temple, is to remind the world that this God, this spiritual God, has an earthly and historical presence. That the spiritual God, the supernatural God, is in the natural world. He's not just out there somewhere. He is actually here. And the, temp- the tabernacle and the temple were reminders of that. And particularly in the days of Numbers, in the, in the journey in Numbers, when above, the, above the, the tabernacle was the cloud that represented the glory of God called the Shekinah. And you remember that whenever... The cl- whenever the cloud lifted up and began to move, that meant it was time to move. And when the cloud settled, that meant it was time to stop, and that's where we're going to build, that's where we're going to set up camp. And so an important theme in, this bo- in the book of Numbers is not just the guidance of the Lord, but the presence of the Lord. And that's so important for us to remember, because here's one of those, here's one of those really cool Old Testament, New Testament connections. You know, one of the things that really did upset the disciples was the idea that Jesus was leaving, that he was going somewhere. He tells them about his death. He's telling them that he's leaving them. And what happens at the Last Supper? They say, don't leave us. We don't know where you're going. He says, he says don't be afraid. You know where I'm going. I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. There are many mansions. And what does Philip say? He says, we don't know where you're going. How do we know? says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But remember, I mean, again, this is an angst about the fact that he was, he was saying he was going to be gone. And they weren't sure what that meant, but they didn't like the idea that he wasn't going to be present with them. Things were always seen better for the Hebrews when God was present with them. And so what's Jesus' answer to the idea that he's not going to be physically present with them? He says, I'm going to send my helper, the advocate the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, and He will be with you. And, he, and it's interesting, the way Jesus, Jesus really pumps up the Holy Spirit. He says, it's going to be better. You know, I'm going to be physically gone, but it's going to be better when He's with you. And so, so the idea is that, again, in the Old Testament, that you had the tabernacle representing the physical presence of God, and then the the, the Shekinah representing his spiritual presence. You know, what was Jesus? Jesus was the what? The Word made? Yeah. yeah. Do you remember, you remember what it says in John chapter 1? In the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And, in the, uh, and the Word became flesh and what it among us? Dwelt. Yeah. You know what the Word actually says? Tabernacled. Set up his tent. And so you've got, again, this parallel between the coming of Jesus and then the Holy Spirit and the tabernacle, later the temple, and the Shekinah. 
And so this is the presence of God that is with the people throughout all of their trials. We then talked about how God had different roles for the people. You know, these are the Levites. You know, they had a job. You know, their job was to the guard and to move the temple. You had the Nazarites. You had the priests. But as he's organizing them for this journey, we talked about the different, the different types of people. The, you know, these were kind of the functionaries. What were the Nazarites? I described them as kind of the cheerleaders. They're kind of like the... Or, you know, they're kind of like the, the 12th man or like the, the roughnecks at OU. I mean, they're the kind of ones who sort of embody the spirit of Israel. It's like, and we aren't sure exactly what they do, except for they ride the little coach out into the, the, the Sooner Schooner out in the middle of the field. But they fire everybody up. That's what the Nazarites did. They were kind of the cheerleaders for the people, just kind of keeping them focused on, on God. So you have all these different roles. We talked about the structure of the camp and that God, you know, God intentionally... Uh, set, had them lay out the camp in a way that, you know, so, so you had people on the north, you had different tribes always set up on the north, the south, the east, or the west, depending on who they were. You had the, the Levites camped closest to the tabernacle because that was their job, was to take care of the tabernacle and all the things that went with it. Then you had the sort of among the clans and among the families of the Levites, you had the priests and the priestly families right here at the, right here at the door of the of the tabernacle, and I think it's I still think it's fascinating. Who who was the cl- tribe that the non-Levite tribe camped closest to the door of the tabernacle? The tribe of Judah. Whose tribe was Judah? Yeah, Jesus, David. I mean, there's I mean all these connections, all these wonderful connections that we see. Um, and so you know, of course, when it was time to move, the cloud would move and the people would move. And we talked about the fact that so often we get, we get sideways with God because what? We want to move when He's not moving. Or we want to stay when He is. That's one of the things that's, that's really challenging. Um, at the end of the Lamentations passage I'm preaching on this week, it says that, you know, that we are, you know, blessed are those who wait for the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean wait as in, you know, I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. It means wait expectantly. You know, we, are, we are waiting, expecting God to do something, but it means that we're not going to move unless God moves. And we're not going st- to stay unless God stays. You know, it's so hard for us to live by that, isn't it? We're always wanting to move in anticipation of what we think God's going to do. Um, isn't that how Abraham and Sarah got in trouble with the whole Hagar and Ishmael problem? It's like, oh, you know, God, we know you said you'd bring us a son, but we, you know, we got to figure out a way around that. Clearly, you want us to be creative here. And they botched it. And so, you know, so this is a reminder to the people that you don't move till God moves. And when God stays, that's where you stay. But while you're there, you do the things God has called you to do. You do them until he says that you're finished with that task. So we, you know, we keep moving. So where, where were they moving? So everything's still going well. They've come out of Egypt. They've got lots and lots of money. They had the episode with the golden calf. We'll come back to that in a second. But for the most part, things are going well. And they come to the edge of the promised land, the, one, the place they've been hearing about for 400 years, and it's time to go in. But because this is new territory for everybody, including Moses, he's never been this far, presumably, um, he sends spies into the land. And what do the spies do? What do the spies see? They discover all kinds of milk, honey, produce, monster grapes the size of basketballs. I mean, it is awesome. But they also discover that the land is filled with these people called the Anakim. Now, who are the Anakim? Giants, or what they call giants. Think, you know, think a whole, you know, lots and lots of Goliaths. <laughs> you know, at least this is, you know, this is the perception of them. They think that because they've got big cities and they're probably wearing armor and things like that. They're just, you know, whatever they were, they were, you know, maybe not think like Jack and the Beanstalk green giants, but maybe think like NBA players or something like that. These people, yeah, Shaquille O'Neal. There's a whole country full of Shaquilles. Um, And they're pretty intimidated. And they come back and they say, yeah, it's a great land, but we can't do this. And Moses is saying, we've gotten all the way here to Kadesh Barnea. We are here. It's there. And they say, nope, we're not going in. And God says what? I cannot believe this. 
brought you all this way. Again, whole narrative is not, these are not doctrinal propositional statements. It's portraying the relationship between God and the people as a relationship of, that we can understand, a human relationship. And God is like, oi! <laughs> what? He's the God of the Hebrews. Come on. You, I mean, of course he's going to sound like that. Um, is this really what's happening? And God says, all right. If you don't want to go in, you don't go in. It's fascinating. Manifest all the way, finally, finally uh, described in formula form in the book of Romans. What is God's greatest punishment for sin and rebellion? Giving you what you want. What does he say in Romans? He says, he gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. He gave them over to their idolatry. He gave them over to their... In other words, he... He didn't push him. He says, no. He didn't say, nope, come on, I got this. He'd been saying that for, you know, for years now. He said, you don't want to go in? You don't trust me? Fine. You're not going in. And so, God says, well, we're going to have to find something to do for 40 years. Because not a one of you is going in, and we're going to wander in the wilderness. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this entire generation dies out. I mean, that's, that's an interesting understanding of God's, of God's promises and, and covenant. It's, you know, we need to remember that God, in the, in the Old Testament, sometimes God says, I'm going to keep my promise to the people of Israel, but that may not include you. If you're going to rebel, that's not going to include you. I know. God promised that He would give them the God, He promised that He would give them the land, and He did, but it, but not for this generation, not for this generation, and so from there they begin their wanderings in the wilderness. And it's important to remember that the Hebrews did not wander in the wilderness because they got lost. They they wandered in the wilderness because God told them they were not allowed to go in. And again, here's another interesting parallel. I mean, again, land flowing with milk and honey. But just like Eden, it's like God has set, a, has set one of his cherubim at the gate and not allowed them in. So, from there, they continue, to, uh, they, they continue to fight wars. We find out that God does have some business for them to attend to. There are people under a curse. The Canaanites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, uh, all these groups that have been living in heinous rebellion against God for generations. There are also other tribes that are just sort of cousins of the Israelites that they have to deal with. But we see that this is a time of war. It's a time of battle. It's not that they just get to wander around and camp out. This is a really hard time in which their faith was tested time and time again. They had to face, you know, they, they faced you know, what they thought was hardships of no food, but God was giving them food. No water, but God was giving them water. They, discomfort. This was a time of extreme discomfort in which they were being shaped into the people God wanted them to be. But in all these instances, they, they continued to grumble. They continued to fight. And one day, God said again, enough is enough. It's like, you, you know, I just gave you a victory in battle. I keep giving you food, and you don't like that? You know what? If you don't like that, I'm going to send a bunch of fiery snakes to harass you, to kill you. Now, again, I don't know if y'all are snake people, Sending snakes, if God just filled this room with snakes, you would see me freak out. But fiery snakes? I mean, come on, that's like, that's a level up. Well, what does God do then? It's God, this was again, another situation in which he was saying, you're going to have to trust me. And so what did he do? He told Moses it's this really bizarre little command. He said, he said if, you want to, if anybody wants to live, he says, I want you to make a bronze image of a snake and I want you to put it up on a stick. And, and, and anybody who looks up at that snake, at that image of the snake, they'll survive, but anybody who doesn't, anybody who's just trying to beat the snakes from around their feet, they're not going to make it. You have, to, you, you have to trust me and you have to do this ridiculous thing I'm going to tell you to do, which is to look up at that snake to get, you know, to be saved from your death. From these fiery serpents. Well, we talked about why this is such an important story. It's an important story because Jesus used this exact story to explain to Nicodemus salvation. 
He said, you know, we, he, you know, this is the preamble to what? John 3.16. John sa Jesus says in John 3.14, Just as Moses lifted the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he says then, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever belie believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So this snake becomes an emblem of trusting in God and trusting in God in something ridiculous. The thing that your whole eternity is determined by whether or not you trust God with it and trust His Son, Jesus Christ, who is a, a, a condemned criminal. Well, he says that's, a, that's what God's asking you to do. And so this snake becomes an emblem of Christ's own crucifixion. Then, of course, we have the tragic story of Moses' own failure, where we see that Moses is not exempt from God's law and God's command. What was the problem when he struck the rock and, and to get water for the people? He wasn't supposed to. What was he supposed to do? Speak to the rock. Talk to the rock. You know, not to pray to the rock, but he wasn't supposed to hit it. And the problem here is not so much, you know, and I, there are all kinds of commentaries that the rock was Christ and things like that, and I, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. But I think the problem is, is that Moses decided to take God's commands casually. You know, he says, he says talk to the rock, I'm going to hit the rock, I'll show, I'll show the people. And he took God's command casually and God said, nope. And that's when Moses received the sentence that, neither, that he too would die before he got to the promised land. And so this, you know, so this is one of those times where we see that God is not playing games. Again, what is the beginning of wisdom according to, according to Proverbs? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Taking God seriously, that's the beginning of wisdom. You know, when we take, that's the problem with so many people. It's not that they don't believe in God, it's just they don't take Him seriously. And God, and God was trying to reinforce that through Moses, even with Moses. Then we get to the story of Balaam. Now here's a guy who keeps showing up and over, and over, over and over again. Why do we remember Balaam? Because, you know, he, because his donkey spoke to him and told him not to prophesy, not to curse Israel. We know he was a real prophet. Um, we also know that he was kind of a magician or sorcerer for hire. And so that, you know, so he was kind of a spiritual mercenary. And God said, do not curse my people. And so what did Balaam do? He kind of tried to say, well, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. I won't curse the people, but I'll still take Balak's money, the king who hired him to curse Israel. And we see that he becomes, in the Bible throughout history, even to the book of Revelation, where he's mentioned, he becomes a, a symbol for compromised faith for wanting to kind of have our cake and eat it too, for wanting, to, for wanting to have that kind of worldly faith where we say, well, I'll go to church on Sunday, but the rest of the week it doesn't matter. And Balaam becomes this symbol of, of not just lukewarm faith, but really of compromised faith. Then we see, that, then we see that, that because of that compromised faith, the people began to sort of lose, lose faith in God and they began to cavort with and intermix with the Canaanites, again, with the, uh, with the Moabites and the Ammonites um, and the Midianites. And we discover uh, in, through the headlines that, that they fell into the thrall. They yoked themselves a Baal, a Peor. Who was Baal? Baal was one of the Canaanite gods. What was pa Baal's favorite sacrifice? Children. The people of Israel actually fell into a cult of human sacrifice. And for that, God once again nearly destroyed them. I mean, this is, I mean, this, this is something that reverberates through history now. But, but you know, we, we wonder, why is it that God doesn't want these people, doesn't want the Israelites mixing with the Canaanites? Because these were the Canaanites. These are people under curse. Who were, you know, who, who were the Moabites? Who were the Ammonites? They were, they were the descendants of Lot's incestuous children with his daughter. And so, you know, these are people under a curse. And, you know, and, and while it 
you know, it, it just really touches our sensibilities and makes us freak out. We're like, oh my gosh, how could God want to wipe out entire peoples, men, women, and children? I don't know. I can't wrap my head around it. I don't have the insights God had. All I know is that these people were so bad, they deserve the death penalty. And, and, all I, and I can't justify it. I can't understand it. All I can say is, all I can say is, you know, this is what God did. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm going to take God seriously when he says these people were, these people were beyond anything you can expect or anything we would expect. But we do see that they almost dragged the people down with them. They almost dragged the Israelites down with them. Finally, one of the last major episodes in Numbers is the, is the transfer of authority from Moses to Joshua. Now, Moses has not died yet, will not die till the end of Deuteronomy. But it's at this point that his authority is then passed on from Moses to Joshua. Um, Joshua being one of the two spies who came back and, and said, no, we should go into the land 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, and I, it's always fascinating. They always portray Moses as this ancient man and Joshua as this young guy, like a, you know, like a 25-year-old. By this time, Joshua's in his 60s. I mean, he's, you know, he's now a mature leader within the people. He's been Moses' right-hand man for a while. Um, but what's also interesting about Joshua, who shares a name with Joshua? Jesus. Uh, again, you know, there's a passing from Moses to Joshua, the one who saves, Yahweh saves. You know, this, again, uh, you know, Joshua is not Jesus. But this is a kind of a forecasting of something that's going to happen in the future. You know, that there will be a new covenant that comes through the one who, who God has designated as the Savior. Um, you know, of course, Numbers is all about dividing the land and making sure that everybody's got a place to eat and a place to sleep. But as I've already hinted to in several places, you know, the, the book of Numbers, even though it is... Probably, I mean, when I think of an Old Testament book, I think of the book of Numbers. I mean, it, it, it has everything that the Old Testament advertises. You know, the wrath of God, talking animals, fiery snakes, you know, pagan gods. I mean, it's, it's, you, you want Old Testament, you find it in the book of Numbers, but you also find an awful lot of New Testament in the book of Numbers. Where was Jesus tempted? In the wilderness. That's where the lamb without blemish was inspected to, to make sure that he was worthy of the sacrifice for the whole world. It's fascinating that there's several specific symbols of Jesus uh, or things that point to him in different ways in the book of, uh, in the book of um, Numbers. One I've already mentioned is the brass serpent. And when he is high and lifted up, you know, that's one of his death, you know, the, the faith and the, the trusting in the cross of Christ. Another, interestingly, is one we didn't really go over, but it's in chapter 19, is the red heifer. I don't know if any of you all read that chapter, but in chapter 19 it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the pe people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. I mean, here again, you know, this is, it's, it's a sacrifice, this sacrifice for the sins of the people. The red heifer being another example of the blood sacrifice that will one day be carried forth and fulfilled by Jesus. Um, so we've got the bronze serpent trusting in the, in the death of Jesus Christ for our salvation, the, the heifer atoning for the sins of the people. Another interesting symbol of, of Jesus, uh, or I shouldn't say symbol of Jesus as much as a, a finger pointing to him in the future, is the rod of Aaron. It's an interesting story in chapter 17 when, again, when the people rebel against Moses and Aaron, and Moses says, all right, I want every, I want every um, person in the, uh, I want every leader in the, in the people 
to bring his staff, and we're going to put them all in here, and God's going to sort of draw lots and show which, you know, which person should truly be the, the leader. And Aaron, you're going to throw your staff in there too. I mean, now what, you know, what is a staff? You know, it's just a, it's a stick. It's a, a, a finished and polished piece of what? Dead wood. But what happens with Aaron's staff? Yeah, Aaron's staff begins to sprout flowers. You don't get flowers from dead wood, right? Scholars have for years, and, and, and mystics for years, and faithful people for years, have pointed to, to the idea that this is a symbol pointing to the resurrection. That when it comes to authority, you're going to follow the one from whom life springs, who brings life from death. And who is that? That's Jesus. So you have just these little hints, as we were talking about in our Thursday morning Bible study, these little God winks of the gospel throughout, uh, through, throughout the book of Numbers. And, you know, and so when, you know, when, you're, when you're reading the book of Numbers, you can almost use it as kind of a template. And ask yourself, you know, where is, you know, where is Jesus in this Old Testament story? You know, where is my... Where is my will? You know, what is my wilderness? What's the wilderness he's bringing me through in this story? And, and I hope that, you know, as you've read Numbers and as we've talked about it, you've sort of gotten not just an appreciation for Numbers, but maybe you'll start to read some of the other New, uh, Old Testament books in a little bit of a different way. For example, if you want to go back to Leviticus, everything in Leviticus points to something about Christ. Just the things he fulfills. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, For I did not come to overthrow the law, but to fulfill it. He's talking about taking all of those obligations, all of those ceremonies, all the symbolic meaning onto himself. And so it's, it, is, it is really important that we understand the Old Testament, not just for its historical value, but in those terms. St. Augustine said that what is revealed in the new is concealed in the old. And, and when you get into the book of Numbers, when you get into Leviticus, as we get into Joshua next time, you'll see a lot of that coming to fulfillment again. So that's what I have to, to share with you about the book of Numbers. I hope that the next time you make a New Year's resolution, uh, you will either read through the book of Numbers or consider that you've already read it and appreciate it as you fly over. Um, <laughs> But in any event, thank you for your time. Uh, are there any, just real quick, are there any questions before I dismiss you to your last, uh, your last, yes, Lindsay. For Jesus? Yes, what about? So if you remember the, the, the story, basically the, the whole idea is that when these fiery serpents were biting the, were biting the legs and the ankles of the people, what's the natural instinct when you've got snakes around your feet? Is look down and beat the snakes away or get away from it. Where's your attention? On the snakes. But, but God, and then later Jesus is saying, if you want to be saved, lift your head from the snakes and look at me. That's your salvation. All right, thank you, Lindsay. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us the book of Numbers. We thank you for giving us this account of your people's wilderness journey because we have our own wilderness journeys that we're enduring and we need the counsel, the guidance, and the wisdom of this book. So Lord, help us to, to not only hear the warnings of numbers, but to find these wonderful experiences, these flashes of grace, these flashes of your Son throughout. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks everybody. Have a great Thanksgiving. I'll see you Sunday, if not soon.